to Teledyne Advanced Chemistry Systems Tech Talk podcast. Our goal is to bring you useful information and offer solutions for your applications and analytical needs. Teledyne Advanced Chemistry Systems represents a group of companies existing of Teledyne Techmar, Teledyne SeaTech, Teledyne Lehman Lab, and Teledyne Hastings. Hello all and welcome to the first podcast from Teledyne Lehman Labs. My name is Tyler Trent. I am the product marketing manager for the elemental business here at Teledyne Lehman Labs, Teledyne Techmar. Within this series, I like to take you, our listeners, on a journey. This journey will be the evolution of analytical instrumentation over the last 30 plus years. In this series, we'll have special focus on ICP and mercury analyzers, specifically from Teledyne Lehman Labs, that will be introduced by our technical product managers here. To get this evolution series started, I would like to introduce Manny Alameda. Manny Alameda is our technical product manager for the ICP product line. Manny, welcome. Can you please give us a little background about yourself? Sure. Um, graduated with a BA in chemistry from Boston University in 1977. <laughs> um, and then I went to the University of New Hampshire and graduated there with a PhD in analytical chemistry, um, primarily focusing on um, graphite furnace um, atomic absorption. And graduated in 1982. And then from there, then I went on and was working at what was called Allied Analytical Systems. And that was two companies that were purchased by Allied and put into one company. So that was Instrumentation Laboratory, which is where I worked. Um, and the other company was Jarrell Ash. Um, Allied Analytical Systems then was sold to Thermo, and then it became Thermo Jarrell Ash. And after a few years there, I moved on and wound up at Lehman Labs a few years after that. Um, in the early 90s, where I've been ever since. Well, Manny, thank you for that quick introduction. Obviously, you have vast experience here. So if you're ready, we'll just jump right into the questions here. So our first topic that we're going to be looking at today for the Evolution Series is ICP. Can you kind of give us a little background about what ICP is, maybe a little bit about the theory of what the system can do? Sure. Um, ICP is a atomic spectroscopic technique, um, and it's used to determine element concentrations in different types of, of samples. And the theory is pretty simple. Um, when an atom is excited, the electrons in its orbits, outer shell orbits, get excited and go to higher energy level. When they relax back down, they emit energy, which we detect as a particular wavelength of light. And by constructing a calibration curve with known standards, we can compare the intensity with unknown samples and calculate what the concentrations are. Mm -hmm. ICP is a multi-element technique, so you can determine approximately 70 elements in the periodic chart to various you know, detection limit capabilities, some, some higher or lower than others. Um, the big advantage of ICP was the multi-element 
capability. Um, previous people did atomic absorption, flame AA or graphite furnace AA, which was one element or two elements at a time. Um, there are were some flame AAs that could do multiple elements, four or five elements at a time. Um, but an ICP um, could handle I mean, systems had up to could do up to 60 elements initially um, with simultaneous PMTs, um, though that became quite expensive. Um, but those were simultaneous instruments, and then there were also sequential instruments that would measure one element at a time. Okay. So as we look at the multi-elemental analysis from the ICP, um, what type of market segments does that play into? So where do we generally see these instrumentations going? For, for ICP, the majority of instruments go into the environmental um, market, whether it's wastewater treatment plants um, or in companies that have to monitor effluents. That's the, the biggest um, application of ICP, um, even even to this day. So because it can do most, you know, 70 elements in the periodic chart, it has lots of applications in different industries um, for quality control, um, for product purity. Uh, for example, there's a lot of application in the oil industry where people will use ICP to determine the um, the amount of like additive elements that are placed in an oil to make sure that the elements like phosphorus, magnesium, calcium are within certain specifications so that the properties of the oil will meet what, what the manufacturer claims. And you don't want to have too much material in there because that sort of that wastes uh, money or too little because then the, the properties of the, the performance of the oil um, will not match up. Okay. Well, that's interesting because obviously the elements play a different role in our lives. So we have to monitor them in every facet that we can think of. So when we start talking about the evolution of ICP, what is your first memory of the ICP? The first ICP that I ever saw um, when I started at Allied Analytical Systems, again, like I said, I was in the instrumentation laboratory group. Um, they manufactured a sequential ICP. So the very first one that I ever saw was the IL Plasma 200. It was a two-channel sequential system. Um, one, So there were two monochromators in it. And one monochromator was a vacuum system that went down to about 160 nanometers Um I don't recall the high end, um, the high wavelength end on it. And then there was a second monochromator, which was an air path monochromator. Um, and the instrument was fast because sequential, you got to scan from one element to, to another element, and it used stepper motors along with the refractor plate. Um, so you would make a measurement on one monochromator, and then while that measurement was being done, the second monochromator would be advancing to the next element. So it was actually quite fast. So you were pretty much always analyzing an element with the with the two-channel system. And one interesting fact about that instrument, it was the first commercial instrument that was that could reach the aluminum 167 line. Um, the line was known, but no no systems were able to get down to it. So this was the very first one um, that that 
allow people to use that 167 line, which is the most sensitive line, but doesn't have great linearity and does have some um, interferences, but, but it was the very first one. So that was the first ICP that I saw and also the first ICP that I ever used. So my background, I came from the sequential side. The other part of the company, which was Gerald Ash, they primarily manufactured simultaneous instruments. Um, they did have a sequential, um, but primarily they manufactured simultaneous systems that could have up to 61 photomultiplier tubes on. Um, so those those were configured instruments. Um, each one of them was different, pretty much. Um, and so they were custom. So you may have 10 channels, 15 channels with different elements depending on the particular particular application. The advantage of the simultaneous was speed. All the elements were measured at one time. The disadvantage was flexibility. If you needed an element that you didn't have a PMT for, then you could not analyze that element. And certain things were done to try and make it a little bit more um, flexible. Um, a second uh, monochromator was put on the instrument. It was called the N plus one channel. So you could manually dial in any other wavelength that you want, though the performance was not as good as what was on the main, um, the main optical, um, the main optical system. Okay. So when you start looking back at your first memory of the ICP, what type of impact did it have on the science at that time? It was, uh, in, uh, when I started, when I started working, it was right around the time when ICP really started to to take off, and it was primarily driven a lot by the environmental industry um, with the CLP program, um, the contract lab program, which was um, designed really um, for simultaneous ICPs because there were 20, uh, 27 or 28 elements that had to be determined, um, and the only way to really do it with the necessary speed where people could actually generate revenue um, you know, profit, um, you needed a simultaneous system. So from that point on, um, then ICP started to be, you know, be becoming much more, much more popular. Um, um, the early systems though were, I mean, compared to what we have today, were really, were manual, right? Every, there was very little automation. Um, there were, there was a computer to run it. Some of them had, um, some of the early Gerald Ash, um, Simultaneous systems actually used an Apple IIe computer, menu-driven software, um, on it. Easy to run, but not but not very sophisticated. Um, they also had a, used a deck computer, which we, we were unable to ship overseas due to security concerns. Um, that was the um, the eleven hundred, same instrument as the nine thousand, which used the Apple IIe. But the, the deck computer was was multitasking, so you could have you know, a half dozen people using it for word processing or other applications while somebody was actually measuring uh, measuring samples with it in the lab. And th these simultaneous instruments were big. Um, a lot of times, people would they would be in their own dedicated room. Um, quite a bit different than the situation that we have now, where the instruments are all. All instruments now are bench top. When I first started, there were no instruments. There were no instruments that were bench top. They were all even the IL two hundred that I that I started working with was a floor standing instrument that had casters, so you could move it around a little bit. But it was but it was pretty big. 
Um, so you needed a pretty, you know, some section of the lab. You didn't have benches or anything to put it. So that's been one big change since the since the beginning. Is the instruments are all much smaller. They're all bench tops now. So what drove that change? The change to go to bench top, smaller bench top in- instruments. Yes. Um, not. I mean, not everybody could dedicate, uh, you know, an entire room um, for an instrument. Uh, then as you know, the technology progressed, so the simul- like I said, I was and I started with sequential, but once you start running running simultaneous instruments, you really don't want to run sequentials because the sequential is so slow. So the simultaneous instrument is you know is much faster. All the elements are done pretty much; they're all done at exactly the same time. Um, they have to make a background correction measurement. So there's more than one measurement. Um, usually they would have a, a refractor plate, which was just behind the entrance slit, um, was called a spectrum shifter. And that would sort of um, deflect a little bit. It would trans, you know, translate the image left or right, and you could do your background correction point. So you had to take two measurements. So you might have like a 10-second integration on on peak and a one second integration off peak for speed. And it could um, normalize the intensity and take care of the difference. Um, If you needed the best possible precision, you would keep the background point at the same integration time as the, as the peak. The the problem is that you only had so many channels on, on the instrument. So they weren't, there was no flexibility, very little flexibility. And then once the, I remember once going down into the engineering um, again at uh, Thermojarlash at the time, and there was an optical system on a on an optical table, and I had never seen this particular optical system. And I asked one of the engineers, the head engineer, was a guy named Gary Kunselman, who's who eventually wound up at Lehman Labs with me, but has retired since. And I asked him, "What is that?" Um, and it turned out, he says, he actually, his response was, well, that's the future of ICP. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, it's in a shell spectrometer. And at that time, um, the only shell spectrometers in the market were the Lehman ones, and we competed against those. And so I said, well, why is that going to be the future? And that was the very first time that I had heard about the solid state detector. So this was a CID detector. And the advantage of the CID detector is it has all has access to pretty much all the wavelengths in the spectrum, depending on on the on the wavelength range. Like the instruments that we manufacture today go from 165 up to about 1100 nanometers, and that's every all the wavelengths for all the elements that are in that range. So by just typing in using software, you could access any any wavelength that you wanted. Um, you weren't bound by the PMTs. And the big advantage of the shell system is it's small. So you can get really good resolution and dispersion on a system that's a half meter on a conventional system. But to be able to match the resolution and dispersion, they have to be about 15 feet long. So roughly, you know, five meters. And there were systems that were that big in the past, uh, not, not anymore. So we were able to go from a a big floor standing three quarter meter a frame with a bunch of photomultiplier tubes to a um, 
a shell spectrometer with a focal length of about a half meter or 0.6 meters with the same resolution and superior dispersion. So the optical system became much smaller. Um, one of the other features on the old simultaneous systems is the RF power uh, you know, the RF power supply was a huge floor standing, not quite the size of a refrigerator. Those became smaller and smaller, and then now they were all wound up inter, you know integrated into the instrument. So you've got rid of that piece. So by making thing you know as technology advanced and things you know new new technologies appeared, the instruments became smaller and smaller until they were benchtop. Um, and the Lehman instrument, the plasma spec, which was the first ICP that Lehman made, was actually the first benchtop ICP available. So going to the first benchtop ICP from Lehman, the plasma spec, that was basically the result of, A, technology advancements over time, but also looking at the shell spectrometer also with the CID camera, is that correct? The first um, shell spectrometers for Lehman were photomultiplier tube based. But there was a big difference between like the sequential, the first sequential that I use, like the IL, the 200. Um, the, the problem with sequentials is you got to move something. So you, and there was all different technologies to be able to, to be able to do that. So you have to move from wavelength to wavelength and you got to be able to find the wavelength. And what you can't do is you can't just drive the optical system or the grading or whatever you, whatever you're moving to get to a wavelength. You just can't drive up to the wavelength and hit it. Um, you just don't have that accuracy. Um, so what you would have to do, there would have to be something that was called a peak search. And there was, again, you know, one of the interesting things about working in this industry is all the different approaches to be able to deal with this. So there were different approaches. Um, the approach of the IL instrument was you had a stepper motor that would drive up to very close to where the wavelength was supposed to be. And you had mercury lamps for wavelength calibration and all that kind of stuff. So you would the stepper motor would drive up to location very, very close to the peak, and then there was a refractor plate, and that refractor plate would translate a little bit. It would move, and what it would do is it would scan across where the peak location was supposed to be and take some number of measurements, and the operator could change it. It was an odd number, so it was either like five, seven, three points, and then it would, then the refractor, once it determined where the peak maximum was, the refractor plate would go back to that point and sit on it. So the instrument was like simultaneous at that point. Right? Everything it would stop when it would make it and it would make its measurement. So that now the peak search, again, we don't really talk about them because there really aren't any peak search sequentials made anymore. The problem with the peak search sequential is the peak wasn't high enough to find or there was interfering peaks nearby could cause it a problem. The Lehman approach was to use the shell. And then to put the photomultiplier, two photomultiplier tubes, one for the UV, one for the visible, on a basically a carriage that could go up and down and left and right um, beside, behind what the focal plane was, which was basically the dispersed spectrum. It had a slit plate that had about 5,000 slits um, entered or cut into it. And then what it could do is it didn't have to search because the wavelengths are so spread out 
on the Echelle, and that was really the advantage of the Echelle for ICP was the dispersion, how far apart everything is. We could move the photomultiplier tube to a particular location, and then we could move the slit plate to get a slit in front of the PMT, and then we were able to make the measurement. So at that point, it was like a simultaneous as as well, but there was no peak search. So the peak search, you need to have that element present so you could find the peak. So if, you, if the element wasn't present, then where would it make its measurement? And there were default positions that it would remember or it would record where the position where it found the last peak and it would reuse that. But it wasn't always it wasn't always accurate. With the Lehman approach, since we weren't doing any search, we could drive right up to the wavelength location and we would be making the measurement at the correct location. So it had better um, better performance when the concentrations of the elements were, were low so that you really could, uh, the instrument was not able to find a peak, but it didn't need to worry about that. At that point, it was a, like a single channel sequential, I'm sorry, single channel simultaneous instrument. And then it would go on to the next one. And it was very fast. The Lehman sequential, um, the plasma specs, the PS series, the DRE, and the profile were all pretty fast. They were the fastest sequentials that I ever used. And I used the I ones. I used a couple different ones. But the Lehman one was always much faster because it did not have to worry about doing that peak search. And that used to be a big portion of, of competition when we were competing. We would be, you know, down and in deep into the peak search algorithms and what was done. It was it was a lot different than, than the way instruments are sold today. So let me ask this question that as as the the spectrometer or the gradients change to a shells and then we move from the PMTs um, over to the solid state detectors. Can you can you elaborate a little bit on the solid state detector change over the years to where we started to where we are now with within our system within the Lehman Lab systems? The um, so for us the the move to the um, solid state detector we were we didn't do it initially um and the reasons were that one of the reasons that you we had the shell was we had this really large focal plane where the spectrum was was dispersed um and if you looked at it um the spectrum was dispersed basically over, i mean the the plate was long but it was at a uh, like a very steep angle so if you looked at it from the perspective of the grading, it looked like maybe a four-inch square or so. So we were dispersing a spectrum over a four-inch square and moving a photomultiplier tube behind it. When the first um, solid-state detectors came out, um, they were really quite small. They were probably about a quarter of an inch, you know, on edge, and that was just it. It was. In our view, it was giving up the primary advantage of the shell, which was dispersion. So we did not go along um, with the with the move towards the shell um, systems with uh, solid state detectors because we thought the sacrifice was too big. Um, we would give up all the dispersion. 
Um, plus the performance initial of, of the solid state detectors in the UV, and it's the elements arsenic, selenium, lead, and thallium, were inferior to PMTs. The PMT is much has much better sensitivity. Plus the PMT, it's a photomultiplier tube, so the signal is multiplied. So one photon in, a million electrons out, depending on the gain and all that kind of stuff. Solid-state detectors, there's no signal amplification. It's one photon in, one electron out. So you had to integrate for much longer periods of time. So if you had a PMT simultaneous and a solid-state simultaneous, the PMT simultaneous was much faster, um, particularly if you were doing elements like arsenic, elements in the UV, plus some of the simultaneous ones were also vacuum systems. So they had very good performance at, at short wavelengths. The disadvantage of the simultaneous was flexibility. You may not have the um, element that you want on the focal curve. So as time went on, then the technology arose for that, that the solid state detector, they got bigger. And what we needed, what we wanted, um, sort of figured out that what we would need would be a one that would be roughly about an inch. So about four times the size of the original ones. and then. That sort of became that became available, and that's when we went to the to the solid to the solid state. Uh, we would like them to be bigger than 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 the one inch, but technology to make those is not. Um, I mean, at that time, it would be expensive to do that, um, and you know, with the bigger array, that means there's few of them on the die, and you have to worry about the, you know how many is still good. Um, um, but right now, the biggest ones out on the in the market now are about one inch. Um, so we went that we had the CID, which we introduced with our Prodigy and Prodigy XP lines. And then, you know, in the meantime, um, Lehman Labs was purchased by Teledyne in 2004, I believe. Um, and the advantage there was Teledyne has a imaging division. And we were able to work with the imaging division to create our own um, custom design solid state detector. And that's the CMOS device that we have now. It's roughly the same size as the CID that we used. Um, but the advantage is that the CMOS detector is substantially faster. I think the, re the readout speed on is about 40 times faster than so we were able to get a detector that was faster, had had much better linearity, um, and we also added a coating, a lumigen coating on it, so we could get performance um, in the UV that was better than we were getting on the CID. And, so, and that's where we are today. So we have this our CMOS detector, which is the newest detector on the market. Um, some of the ones uh, out there have been available since the beginning, since the early 90s. Um, and so we can, you can probably expect some of those to be replaced with newer designs. There's quite a bit of technology. Imaging has you know, progressed tremendously over the past 20 years or more. So I think that what we would see going forward is um, manufacturers introducing new, newer detectors. I mean, maybe not, you know, custom, maybe not design new, but using a detector um, that's not the same as what they have have now. And primarily, what we what you would like is to be able to have better sensitivity in the in the UV, because um, that's when you you know. 
sample integration times tend to be longer, particularly when you're looking for low levels of, you know, and it's always the, you know, the four elements, arsenic, selenium, lead, and thallium are the ones that give people, you know, fits because they, they're not very sensitive to begin with and they're generally at very low concentrations, particularly in environmental samples. So that there's always been a challenge with that. Well, that kind of leads me to my next question there. Obviously, things are continuing to change. So this is going to probably be the last question of the day here, Manny. Where do we see ICP going in the next five or 10 years? I mean, do we need it to be like the tricorder that's going to tell us everything? Or or where do you see us heading in the, in the next uh, generations? I think, you know, particularly in the future is always uh, iffy iffy thing, but I think what you're going to see um, going forward is, you know, instruments have been getting smaller. Um, that, you know, they, you know, there will be a limit to how small they can get, but but they can get pretty smaller. I think what you're going to see is a lot more intelligence being built into this, particularly with software, um, for the instruments being able to, you know, rather than have somebody sit down and develop a method, you can just tell it what elements you're interested in and have it go in and take, cause it, you can see the entire spectrum. So it can go ahead make some measurements. Um, and then, you know, maybe run the sample, determine what wavelengths are best deal with any interferences without much operator intervention. I think that, you know, I mean, you can see newer systems coming out with more and more automated capabilities, you know, gone from the instruments being entirely 100% manual. I mean, even lighting the torch was manual with multiple switches and dials and some people struggle with it to be able to get the, you know, being able to synchronize, to be able to hit the right switch at the right time. Well, that all gone right now. It's you hit the ignite button and off it goes. So I think going forward, I think that's what we'll, we'll see is a lot more software, um, to basically make it sort of like that tricorder. I mean, in reality, you should be able to just take all the data, right? Run your standards, run it for everything for a whole bunch of wavelengths, and then post-process all the data and get the number, get the results that you need. You can you can do that. I mean, that's one advantage of the solid the solid state is it does take more data, so you take the entire spectrum around the line. So if it turns out you need to, oh, background correction points on a peak on the simultaneous PMT when you're in trouble because you don't have any other data. You have the peak data, you have the background data, everything else on the spectrum is gone. You don't have that data on the simultaneous solid state detectors. You have that data. So you could move a background correction point to a location where it's not a problem. Oh, one peak's a little bit off. It's not aligned properly. You can correct for that. So there's quite a bit more you could do. And I think the going forward with software and, you know, artificial intelligence kind of things um, would make it a lot, uh, is going to make it you know, a much, a much more powerful technique. I mean, that was when they first came out, people talked about, well, it'll be able to monitor argon lines and, you know, so you can get basically real time information on how the instrument's performing and if there's issues. Um, we haven't quite gotten to that yet, but I think, you know, it'll, as time goes on, more and more of the, you know, the, the learning how to do method development will fall more and more on the, on the intelligence of the system. I, I, that, if 
I was had to pick one thing, I think that's what will happen. So it'll be, you know, the instrument will become much easier to run. Um, you know, initially you had people who were, you know, scientists that were running the ICPs and now the performance, it's been simplified that, you know, now you could have people, you know, tech technician level, you know, um, personnel, you know, be able to run the instrument and get, you know, actually better data than those scientists could get, you know, 25 years ago. All right. Well, Manny, thank you for your time today and giving us the overview of ICP and where we started to where we are now and to where we possibly could go in the future with this smart automation and smart automation of the software. So once again, thank you for your time. And I want to thank everyone for listening in today. And from there, we'll continue this Evolution Series podcast and we'll be inviting Jeff Forsberg next time to speak a little bit about the Mercury analyzers and how they have changed over time. Thanks for listening to the Tax Tech Talk podcast. For more information about our products and the solutions we offer, please visit www.teledyneacs.com. If you like this podcast, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're hearing this show. That way you'll never miss an episode. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.